Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. At the age of 26, Joni Mitchell released a song that became an anthem and launched a ship that started a global movement. The song was Big Yellow Taxi and the movement was Greenpeace and both of them continue to inspire environmental activists to this day. In the same year, 1970, the Council of Europe started a campaign to get member states to put more effort into protecting the environment. They called it European Conservation Year and I recently discovered I'd noted this little remembered event in a slim page-per-month diary I had at the time. Although Ireland was a member of the Council of Europe, we weren't yet in the common market and hadn't much in the way of policy aimed at conserving our natural heritage. The government's first response to the Council's initiative was to issue a set of postage stamps bearing the stylized drawing of a bird. Perhaps it was this token gesture that led me to write in my diary, with a degree of exasperation worthy of Greta Thunberg, that, despite increasing international concern about pollution and the environment, the political response to the issues in Ireland has been hypocritical. But the government did allocate some money in that year's budget towards a national programme for conservation and a wildlife seminar was held in Killarney that would, in time, lead to the creation of the Forest and Wildlife Service. Progress of sorts was being made. In North America, on the other hand, a dynamic environmental movement that combined concern for the planet with opposition to nuclear weapons had emerged from the hippie counterculture. In 1970, a campaign was mounted against the testing of hydrogen bombs by the US on the Alaskan island of Amchitka, which seismologists claimed could trigger earthquakes and tidal waves. When a protest by thousands of demonstrators on the Canada-US border not only failed to stop a test, but was completely ignored by the American media, it prompted a group of activists in Vancouver to come up with a new way of drawing attention to their cause. Influenced by the Quaker concept of bearing witness, they concluded that a small number of non-violent protesters in the right place at the right time had a better chance of getting publicity. And so they made up their minds to be in the vicinity of Amchitka when the next bomb was about to be detonated. But to hire a seagoing vessel with a captain and crew to sail the two and a half thousand miles to the island would cost a lot of money. And this was when Joni Mitchell stepped in to headline a fundraising concert in Vancouver on the 16th of October 1970. The Canadian singer-songwriter added her friend and rising star James Taylor to the bill and the concert raised $17,000 enough to charter a fishing trawler for six weeks. With 12 people on board, the ship eventually set out for Amchitka in advance of the next nuclear test. It was flying a flag with the newly coined name for the protest group emblazoned on it. Greenpeace was underway and Joni's benefit concert had made it possible. At the concert, she sang some songs from her latest album, Ladies of the Canyon. One of them was Big Yellow Taxi. 
with its jaunty chorus, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. It was greeted by the New York Times as perhaps the first entry in a new genre that might be called ecology folk. In a prophetic verse that manages to cram habitat destruction, deforestation and the paradox of nature tourism into a few words, Joni sang, They took all the trees, put them in a tree museum, and they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Perhaps what makes Big Yellow Taxi so enduring is the sense of humour that infuses it, while making its message no less serious. Joni even drops her voice down into her boots at the end, then signs off with a laugh. The song continues to motivate people to get out and protest. Just recently on the news, I saw a demonstration outside Castletown House in Kildare where protesters, worried about the ecological and aesthetic impact of laying a car park on the grounds, had hung a green and yellow banner on the railings that said, Don't Pave Paradise. a parking lot With a pink hotel A boutique And a swinging hot spot Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you've got Till it's gone They paid paradise Put up a parking lot It's a beautiful spring day in Paris The skies are a clear blue and the leaves are beginning to emerge on the trees in Père Lachaise Cemetery. There are almost 5,000 trees here. Maples, ash, chestnut, even a couple of ginkgo with their beautiful fan-shaped leaves, along with a reputed 70,000 burial plots. It is the final resting place of such noted people as Balzac, Sarah Bernhard, Edith Piaf. Chopin's body is missing its heart, the composer was so afraid of being buried alive that he insisted it be removed after he died. It is interred separately in Poland. The grave I am searching for is less well known. It doesn't appear on the guide I have downloaded onto my phone. Jean Gaspard Debureau, stage name Baptiste, was a French bohemian mime artist who performed at the Théâtre des Funambules on the Boulevard du Crime. I am in Paris for a month, working on a new novel, staying at the Centre Culturel Irlande, in the heart of the Latin Quarter, near the Pantheon and the Sorbonne. I have come to chase Debureau's ghost. I've discovered that he is in Division 59. It contains hundreds of graves, ancient and modern, simple and elaborate, shining marble and mottled granite. I walk along the uneven rows, weaving in and out, stepping over gnarled roots of trees, searching, inspecting the names. A little black and white cat guarding a mausoleum lets me stroke her. Crowds pass me with their guides, examining their catalogues to find Oscar Wilde and Jim Morrison. My quarry does not attract the same attention, yet in the 19th century, his was one of the best-known faces in Paris. From 1816, 
to his death from tuberculosis in 1846, he portrayed the character of Pierrot, making it his own. The Théâtre des Funambules, where Debureau appeared, was for a long time a pantomime theatre without rights to speech. The law on freedom of expression meant that the actors there did not speak on stage. After the July Revolution, that changed, but not for Debureau. While those around him spoke their parts, Debureau chose to remain mute, though it did not stop him from topping the bill. Because Baptiste did not need to speak, coming from a family of acrobats, his physicality was well known, his ability to give expression to powerful emotions without words. A famous anecdote tells of him at the dinner table of the literary critic Gustave Planche, sending his plate spinning into the air and catching it still spinning on the tip of his knife. I am imagining this scene when suddenly I see it, Deborah's grave. It has taken me almost an hour. I see that I have passed it already and I wonder how I missed such a striking tomb, a bust of the mime artist's head with a distinctive hat and veil sit atop. Primroses have sprouted through the stones beside it, although no one has laid flowers for a long time. I sit beside him in silence, the sun on my face, as he would have wanted, I think, this man who chose to be silent, possibly the only actor in Paris not to take on a speaking role for an entire career. But the sounds of the city intrude. There are roadworks, the traffic is loud, a pneumatic drill starts up at the end of his row. I wonder if it will bother him. Because Debureau had a temper. Ten years before he died, he was walking with his family in the Bagnolet area of Paris when a man recognised him and taunted him about his performance. Debureau struck him with his cane. The man died and Debureau was charged with manslaughter. On the day of his trial, the 11th of May 1836, Paris society crowded into the courtroom to hear the mime artist's voice for the first time. The composer and critic Michel Chion named this curiosity the Debureau effect. When a character is mute, it creates a surprise or disappointment when the voice is first heard. It took only five minutes for the jury to acquit him I'm not sure I understand this and I want to find out why. Because his reputation remained undamaged. He was given a hero's welcome when he returned to the theatre. 19th century walking sticks with an ornamental pommel in the shape of Debureau's laughing face were a macabre tribute. In 1945, Baptiste was a main character in Marcel Carnet's noted film Les Enfants du Paradis and yet a man was dead. My phone pings and makes me jump. It's an email from the Mediathèque Library at the Centre Culturel Irlandais. The librarians have found an article from an 1836 legal journal, the Gazette des Tribunaux, with a full account of Debureau's trial. Though it will test my French, I feel a thrill of excitement. I get to my feet, bid Baptiste au revoir, and leave the graveyard. I have some reading to do.
It wasn't too difficult to spot. He would arrive home from work with the spring in his step, rushing to wash away the grime of another day's work in Bordnemona. And then the special request would come. Will you get my accordion? I heard a lovely tune on the radio today. The accordion was his precious honer, a piece of German wizardry that he'd saved for over a year to buy, and the radio was a wonky wireless that sat in the workshop he shared with colleagues for over 40 years. When Dad made a special request for his accordion, it meant that he'd heard something unique on the radio that day. A captivating melody had somehow floated above the racket of wrenches and welders and gently locked itself away in a special corner of his mind. That evening, the ritual of bringing the tune to life would begin. He would sit in his favourite kitchen chair. I would retrieve his accordion, carefully hand it to him, and then sit and watch intently, waiting for the magic to happen. His rugged hands, hardened by the drudgery of working since childhood, would somehow become truly graceful things. His fingers would slowly seek out each note, remembering, rearranging, until everything was in its rightful place and the tune would come alive, as if it had been hiding there all along in the wood and metal of his beloved horner. Only then would his eyes open, and he would look over to me with a gentle smile, a smile that simply said, I have it. And then he would play that tune as if he had been playing it forever. As an East Gory box player, it was the music of Joe Cooley and Joe Burke that inspired him most, two great masters who inspired a whole generation. Back then, it was music I simply didn't understand or indeed appreciate, and yet it meant everything to him. It was the music his father had played, the music that brought his village to life on a dark winter's night. But I just didn't get it. All through the 1980s, I was enraptured by the ethereal synth pop of Prefab Sprout, the Blue Nile and all the others who had discovered how to use machines to make a new kind of music, heavenly and fragile, but with the power to move you to your core. It was also music that Dad just didn't get. And there we resided in our respective musical universes with little chance of ever meeting one another in mutual appreciation. And then something special happened. Suddenly, it was 1991. I was in my mid-twenties, recently married and had become a reasonably competent musician deriving that very same joy from working out new songs on the piano. Dad, now in his fifties, arrived home from work one evening and he called me. I heard a lovely tune on the radio today, but for the life of me, I I can't remember the name of it. Despite our best efforts, no conclusion was drawn until a few days later. I was visiting home when A Man Is In Love the Waterboys single from August of that year floated across the airwaves into our old kitchen. That's it. That's the tune I heard. Listen to it. It's lovely. And he was right. It was truly lovely. And it was our moment to share. 
we had finally found that nexus between our two musical universes, a kind of weird and wonderful wormhole that we could both travel through to sit and listen together to the perfect love song with the magical tune at the very end. Dad passed away five years later. On this day, the 5th of November, he would have celebrated his 88th birthday, perhaps by playing his old honer. I miss him terribly. I miss him when I rummage through his old toolbox, holding the hammer and wrenches that he used so skillfully to make new things, things that ultimately outlived him. I miss him when I hear the brilliant Martin Hayes breathing new life into an old Paddy Fahey jig. And I think, yes, Dad would delight in every second of this, surely prompting him to speak those words I still treasure. I heard a lovely tune today. So today, on his birthday, I'll go sit with him, under the trees, in a quiet graveyard, and we listen to our song together. Here's a poem set in New England, in Vermont. It's called Happy Valley, and it has nothing to do with the television series. (laughs) Happy Valley. The brook is this mix of roar and hiss, as if God had managed to scalpel a section of tempest and clothespin it in the woods, over there always draped in the trees. While we eat white summer peaches from celadon bowls, while the sun bleaches and blue jay squawks score the maple, oak, birch, and apple-treed sky with their oblique scriabin musics. Fifteen years since I have seen a real fall her deciduous burlesque, her glistering things sifting on the old cider mill, a holy show. I hold a wooden fragrance and a sodden mush of crushed flowing apples in a cache and will never give it up. The cardinal is the best bird because it's a red mark on the blank snow, amid the charcoal twombly of maple, oak, birch, and apple branches. Pines are green and far away, don't figure. My sister in spring is even prettier, her smile, the genuine quality of it, undiminished in the many months since I have been in Happy Valley. It roars and is constantly in spate because it has its reasons, 
spring being spring, plus my visiting. Life was less than kind to Billy O. Right from the word go, the road ahead curved ever upward, the incline getting steeper, the inevitable end, a sheer cliff face that offered nothing after all. But for that one spring and the year that followed, the light shone brightly on Billy's golden dreams. It was an afternoon in April, and we were in the school playground when the carnival arrived in Castle Dermot. The long line of lorries and caravans twisted like a snake charmer's serpent along the narrow lane to the side of the playground, winding its enticing way towards the fair green. We stood goggle-eyed, our games of football and tig forgotten. The swinging boats and chairplanes bolted securely onto lorries passed us by, offering the promise of the only abandon that would come our way that year or for many years to come. I can't say I was aware of Billy O that afternoon. He was in seventh class, the holding pen for those long-trousered boys who had already decided their education was complete. The boys who would on the morning of their 14th birthdays, empty their school bags of the unused copybook or two and the pencil and nibbed pen and adapt them as lunch bags for the farm labouring or coal shoveling that lay ahead. The following weekend, the carnival was in full swing, cheroplanes zipping through the night air, swinging boats rising and falling creakily, bumper car poles sparking off the overhead grid, blue and red bulbs flashing above the pongo tent, pink candy floss magically winding itself around the long sticks that were dipped into the swirling metal bin. Excitement and colour and another world of anticipation and exhilaration had come to our village for a week. And then it was gone. All that remained was the flattened grass and the holes where the hefty pegs of the pongo tent had been buried in the earth, and the tire marks of the heavy lorries, like reminders not to put our faith in passing cravat-wearing prophets. And Billy O was gone as well. The lure of the road, the possibility of excitement, 
The offer of a job had met with no resistance. He had run away with the carnival. From what we fourth-class boys heard, a postcard had come to his mother and father from a town on the east coast, saying that he would be in touch. His parents accepted his decision, realising that the opportunities that awaited him on his 14th birthday were far short of the shining, gift-wrapped prospects a young boy would hope for. The best they could offer him was an introduction to agricultural labour or a ticket for the boat to England. The carnival, on the other hand, presented a paying job, a bunk in a caravan, and the enjoyment of a new town every week. Rumours circled the playground that spring. Billy O had left the carnival and joined a circus. He was part of a high-wire act. He had travelled to Russia with the show. He was lion-taming in an American city. He was the world's newest ringmaster. This young boy who had sat at the back of the room in seventh class, head down, biding his time till time itself released him from the anger of the headmaster, had suddenly attained heroic status. We, who wouldn't have kicked a football in his direction, were in awe of his courage and his sense of the possibilities beyond our own slim hopes. Word came that summer from returning holidaymakers that Billy had been seen with the carnival in Tremor. He looked well. He looked older than his 14 years. He was happy. He sent a big hello to everyone. The following spring, the carnival snaked its way again through the village. And the moment school was over, we stampeded to the fair green. And sure enough, there was Billy O, a cigarette dangling from the corner of his mouth, <laughs> high on the roof of the pongo tent, tightening the ropes. He ignored us. <laughs> we were kids, and he was a working man. That weekend, Billy was the one in charge of the bumper cars, collecting the money swinging the steering wheels lightly as he leaned over the shoulders of girls who hung on his every word and giggled when he guided their cars out of dead-end corners. The same girls hung around him when the carnival lights dimmed and the night drew to a close, and there they were again the following night, basking in his striking glow. Girls who wouldn't have given him the time of day had he been working on a farm or in a shop were suddenly enthralled by everything he said and did. And we, young whippersnappers, were no better. And then the carnival was gone again. Only the flattened grass and the hard words that followed Billy's departure remained. He got notions about himself. <laughs> Who did he think he was? Showing off like he owned the bloody carnival. The following spring, the lorries and caravans returned, but there was a different young man working the bumper cars. Life was indeed to prove less than kind to Billy O. But for that one spring and the year that followed, the light had shone brightly on his golden dreams. I hope he found some way of remembering those days of brightness when the darkness fell. I hope he knew that his heroism 
is well and fondly remembered by a short-trousered boy from fourth class. Mirror. I used to be on his mother's dressing table, one of the few things he rescued from her house. I sit now on their dusty chest of drawers. My feet fall off when his woman decides to dust. She doesn't clean me the way his mother buffed and polished, treasured. I'm not cared for like that now, but freer in a way especially in autumn when I reflect the fruit trees back to themselves and her coloured scarves hanging on the door of the wardrobe. He slides up books in front of me and I read their titles over and over until he replaces them with others. The walnut wood of me listens when they talk and to their breathing and snuffling in the night. The room is stuffy even with the windows open. Mornings, the birds wake the sky, pink as a baby's breath, like his breath when his mother held him close and looked for their reflection on my face, a pieta witnessed only by me. In my window, small pears redden, she collects elderberries, and a fawn and white cat touches me with her paw. He cuts the grass, passing over and back, over and back the way he did once on a tricycle. He is a man now, not as interested in facing me, but my grain still holds his mother's touch. The scent of Pond's cold cream, wax polish, and another bedroom far from here, where she faded in front of me. On this morning's programme we heard They Paved Paradise by Pat Dunn. The Deburu Effect by Andrea Carter. I heard a lovely tune today by Kieran Cannon. Happy Valley, a poem by Alice Lyons. Billy O by John McKenna. And Mirror, a poem by Lanny O'Hanlon. The music was Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. From the soundtrack to Les Enfants du Paradis, La Pantomime by Maurice Thirier. A Man is in Love by The Waterboys. Strawberry Lane, performed by Zoe Basha and Alton Conway at the recent Sunday Miscellany Live at Iron Mountain Festival Leitrim. And The Circle Game by Joni Mitchell, sung by Cleana Gann and Cathy Forrestal, and that was from a past Sunday Miscellany Live in Waterford. RTE Radio 1's 80th birthday tributes to Joni Mitchell continue later this evening with The Wonder of Blue at 7.30.
And Lanny O'Hanlon's new poetry collection, Landscape of the Body, published by Daedalus Press, has its Dublin launch at Books Upstairs in Delir Street in Dublin this Tuesday the 7th of November at 6 o'clock. And Sunday Miscellany, a selection 2018 to 2023, just published by New Island Books, will be launched next weekend as part of Dublin Book Festival. It's also been nominated for an Irish Book Award. See irishbookawards.ie to vote. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.